KSU Stanford 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Model. This is the Henry George program. This is a show about housing, economics, morality, activism, etc., etc. Today in the program, we have Ali Zhu. He is an activist based out of San Jose, active on the housing scene all across the Bay Area. We'll let him introduce himself. Let's just get into things. Welcome, Ali. Hey, what's up? Yeah, so we we've known each other for a uh, better part of two years, at least a year and a half now, and uh, yeah, so I think that uh, we occupy a similar space in in different activist groups around this area. But why don't you introduce yourself as far as you know what first brought you to actually interject yourself in, into local groups and what you hope to do by by actually getting involved? Uh, yeah, sure. So I kind of got involved with local activism, political stuff. In the same, around the same time that a lot of people did around the 2016 election, hmm. and uh, housing was a particularly interesting issue for me because it touches on things like environmentalism and sustainability, um, segregation, diversity. Yeah, um, all all these kinds of things that I've been thinking about like during the election. Because like after the election is the Silicon Valley DSA kind of grew out out of that. Yeah, uh, and a lot of other DSA chapters. And you were there near the beginning, as far as the beginning of the housing working group. Yeah, we. I remember uh, being there for like the first few meetings, and we we helped draft the uh, the charter. Yeah, the charter platform, and yeah, all, yeah. which I, I think that compared to it has perhaps a different vision than what other kind of DSA chapters done for housing, largely because it reflects the particular Silicon Valley vision. I mean, Silicon Valley has a very different flavor than what you see in Oakland, what you see in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, I, I think I agree to that to, to a large extent, yeah. I mean, there is less there is less inner city, and there's a lot more suburbs. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think... Um, a lot of the motivating things uh, for people in our working group uh, revolve around how sprawling and, um, let's say, not vibrant uh, the Silicon Valley is as a whole. And uh, it has a weird kind of tendency to make us maybe more anxious for actual change. Because sure. if you're in a place that actually has vibrant communities that are threatened, you know, it is it is very much on them to say, okay, step number one is preservation. Whereas mm-hmm. around here, it's doing nothing is just letting the suburbs eat at you. Yeah, and um, I know this about a lot of people who are on the left, but um, maybe uh, have a different perspective on housing development than most of the left does. Um, a lot of us grew up in suburbs where we... Uh, see with our own eyes a lot of this, you know, blatantly classist, racist nimbyism and um, how it basically prevents people from access to uh, what could be good neighborhoods. Hmm. Uh, they have jobs and, you know, amenities and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it it is the the nativism which is kind of in a lot of places you can overlook in the suburbs is saying oh yeah you know people can move here when the houses become several million dollars it's very hard to ignore the fact that being a homeowner here is is 
a political act of exclusion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that is much harder to look away from and we have to come to terms with. And I mean, it's worth kind of saying like how a lot of the discourse on how like how to you know enact housing justice there is the uh, east bay statement the other week that said that you know homeowners should not be assessed property tax for affordable housing bonds because homeowners should be protected and this was this was a dsa statement and it was very it was it, i mean it was it was overruled in the end but it made you realize there's some blind spots in a lot of places right yeah so the original statement was i think it came out of a, a the steering committee yeah yeah that was yeah specifically for uh making recommendations for the general sure. uh, chapter to vote on uh and then after they voted against the committee's recommendations yeah the chapter leadership uh, release another document that kind of like uh, defended their original um, oh, thing a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, housing, I can't get too mad about some of those things because housing policy is like super complicated. No, I think it's, it's worth saying. I don't want to be mad at anybody. I'm yeah. just, I feel like there's a challenge of saying that the typical ways that a lot of kind of the the thought on the left has addressed things has really overlooked how to deal with housing in the context of suburban exclusion. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just something that's like the language isn't there. And especially when a lot of people want to look at everything in a very specific Marxian Mm. class hierarchy structure, they say, oh yeah, the uh, homeowner class, that's not, that's not a class. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's no, there's nothing wrong about that because, because Marx rubber stamps it. Yeah, it's it's something for sure that you can't ignore the relationship between homeowners and land use politics if you are living in an area like Silicon Valley because San Jose is like has like the highest um growth rate in like home value prices in like the country. Yeah. And like we like we've seen like homeowners just like come out to uh, city events to like protest against the development of like homelessness shelters. Yeah, homeless shelters. They, they, I mean, they went out when they're they're building. It was bridge housing. Yeah. in San Jose, and it was people. It was kind of like tiny homes for people being brought out of homelessness to kind of get their feet on the ground before other yeah. other housing interim housing. Yeah, exactly. And they're spreading throughout the city. But any person whose neighborhood was touched by this, they were they at this event. Yelling about it and, and chanting "build a wall." Yeah, it was it was nuts. And uh, I feel like you can't really uh, look at that and also look at how um, alienating and animizing the built uh, the suburban built environment is uh, without um, you know wanting a better something better that's not just against let's say like a market rate uh, condo or whatever in Cupertino, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the structure of the suburbs, it's you can't possibly have it change to to have other people who, who need help, who need things. It must stay as is. It's part of the suburban mindset, at least, you mm-hmm. know, and it's seen as just, oh, this is this is what I signed on to. But I mean, part of the reason we're talking about this is because I think one of the most important things that you know, kind of we're working on right now or just kind of the entire uh, you know, entire thrust of, of of housing justice in the South Bay, especially, is kind of 
working for giving tenants power and tenant tenants' rights, building tenants' rights. And a big question is, should our tenants' rights in opposition to homeowner what they what they have? Like, and is in general, if you are going to give more power to tenants, you know, does this mean change? I th- I personally believe it means change. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, there are, I mean, you mentioned the East Bay DSA example. I think there are a lot of strains of people who want to pursue good progressive or, or leftist housing policy who don't really recognize that um, at a lot of levels, um, homeowner and tenant um, interests don't align. Yes. Uh, the f- main one is that homeowners' interests are for property values to go up yes. forever. Which, in another way of saying, protecting property values is maintaining unaffordability. Right. And and we've seen that develop in the last um, you know generation or two, where we have a huge class of people who have home uh, who were able to uh, buy homes uh, with the help of government subsidies and whatnot. And um, they are pursuing in their own neighborhoods policies that are blatantly anti-poor Yeah. Um, in order to keep up the value of their houses, like the people who are protesting against uh, the bridge housing developments. I mean, I think it, it, it really comes down to the fact that what is the way you get out of being in the unenviable position of being a tenant, it's by escaping it. That mm. is like basically the only way our society has really allowed it, saying, if being a tenant is bad, why don't you try to not be a tenant anymore and be a homeowner? And you ha- like you either have to be desperate or stupid to put up with being a tenant in a world that it is built for homeowners. And there is a lot uh there there's like a lot of um parts of the left that kind of have seeded that point in the sense of like the our country is built for homeowners our system is built for homeowners interests yeah and we kind of take that for granted and because of that we say well what's good housing policy um let's why, work within that system yeah let's try to make as many people as many people as possible homeowners and I mean that has been the pragmatic middle class, you know, policy, and that mm-hmm. is something that I think even people who are saying let's have a progressive vision, and they're still they still want to preserve that. Yeah, I mean, you even um, see people like Bernie Sanders like talk about like emphasizing home ownership when they're talking about housing. I mean, his his uh, community land trust in Burlington was mm-hmm. largely about having people who normally couldn't afford homes have homes and actually get some money through the equity of the homes they're, they're making. Oh, so they weren't like zero equity they, I think CLTs? They, I think they started off being 25% and they're bumped up to 50%. Interesting. So, okay. But it's largely about getting people on the home ownership ladder, huh. which is that's the whole thing. And the question is, is the ladder big enough for everybody? I think that if you look at our cities, it is not big enough to have everybody have certainly single-family homes. There is simply not enough to go around that everybody can have that. Yeah, it's definitely um, one of the glaring blind spots about this (laughs) is that even just from a geometric, just basic geometry, if you want to have a secure this type of lifestyle for, let's say... 80% 80% or some large portion of the, the country, it's just environmentally unsustainable. And then if you're looking at a global perspective, imagine trying to get 
if you if you were calling a home ownership like single family home ownership like economic justice, imagine trying to bring um, all of the population of China and India up to speed. Yeah, I mean we would be taking up like you know all of the land there there is to take up. Well, it's it's worth saying that I think that if you gave everyone an acre, like the entire United States, you would only be taking up a pretty small area. Sure, but that's not the way that. The economy works and jobs work. People yeah. want to be as close as they can to jobs. And because of that, we're seeing people commute from Tracy. We're seeing people do these like really crazy uh, means to get as close as they can to where they can make money because they'd like to get closer, but they can't. There's no room for them closer. And you could say, oh, sure, there's there's plenty of, of empty land out there for you to grab, but it's not like that's, that's not at all pl- plausible. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about um, – Density, when it comes to housing density, like the development of good neighborhoods that have stuff to do and uh, can, uh, you know, create um, community and uh, can be served by like public transit. So they're like, you know, more environmentally sustainable. Like that has so much to do with housing density. You've been a lifelong uh, Bay Area resident, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you've lived East Bay, South Bay. Is that right? Like you've lived all over this, this great land of the Bay Area. I haven't lived in San Francisco. Yeah. But you've, you've, you've been there. Uh, I mean, it's like, do you feel like the built environments you've been in have been kind of not as vibrant as you want them to be? Yeah. So, uh, Berkeley is a good example um, outside of the dormitories, it's a pretty low density city. Yeah, and uh, I've lived in some pretty um, crappy old apartments, like sure. small apartments, uh, and in, in one fourplex. And uh, I feel like that experience has kind of uh, freed me of the idea uh, that, let's say, like small time. Like um, small scale landlords are like inherently better than like large landlords, and that is, I mean, if you talk about other blind spots of the left, part of it could be like, oh, the only bad business is big business. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's it's is about the landlord relation that is bad. If you've ever worked for a small business, like it's hard to organize unions in small businesses. Um, your bosses just get away with like so much more stuff like i mean part of it is the fact that we are part of a system that makes it it's it's stacked against small businesses so if you are have any chance of running a small business you do it by the expense of being a jerk to your employees that's the only way you can keep your head above water yeah that's one of the things i really uh i really like that uh like chapo makes one of these points is um making the point that small business owners are just like these little authoritarians. Sure. Um, I've had conversations with people who work at the Silicon Valley Law Foundation, which basically serve, like, uh, offer legal service for underserved populations. And um, I've had some conversations that um, basically, I think they were saying that a lot of their case, maybe the majority of their cases are just like these small landlords because... There's less accountability. Um, they know that the there aren't as many tenants that can talk to each other and can like do anything about it. Yeah. So they're just like um, there's a lot more exploitation in that area. Uh, tell the listeners what a tenant union is. What is a tenant union? and What do they try to do? 
Uh, sure. So, <laughs> yeah. So,、uh, tenant unions are、uh, basically ways that tenants can organize、um, to negotiate for their own interests.、Um, you can organize、uh, within your building, within your apartment complex. You can or- organize across complexes. And what, what what were things that tenants would want that they don't have now? Like, what do tenants want in the world? Uh, stable, safe housing. Yeah, I mean,、uh, have you ever have you ever been like a tenant and and suddenly what you are currently renting is no longer available? Because I've been like kind of like low key evicted, you know, twice in the last three years. You know, it 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 happens and it's not fun. As in your lease just th- doesn't get renewed. Yeah, like the landlord sells it from under you and does all sorts of stuff. I've been、uh, lucky enough to not. Have run into that situation. <laughs> it, it is it is part of just knowing that if you don't control your housing situation, it might happen. And oh yeah, and I mean it's there's the whole song and dance of okay, you know the lease is coming up. You need to kind of pretend to the landlord that you know absolutely a single dollar is going to say, oh, I can't afford that.、Mm-hmm. So it's like if he thinks that you are going to. You know, if if he like, there's, I was I was seeing like an anecdote saying if the landlord gets wind from somebody, you have a, a pay raise. They're gonna like say, oh, I can charge that person more rent. Oh yeah. It's like I mean, it is like it is a thing. Like you are actually, it is a. It's like a it's like a game you're playing between the two of you, and it's not fun because the landlord wants to basically maximize their payout. It's not like some sort of benevolent situation. Like they're they're trying to squeeze you for、mm-hmm. what they can. Um. So in general, like if a group is for tenants' rights, is it better if it's run by tenants or if it's run by homeowners?、Uh, yeah. So this is a big issue that、um, has come up with、uh, organizing that we've seen in the Silicon Valley. Sure.、Uh, so, for example,、um, the Mountain View Tenants Coalition. Yeah. So we're we're doing a bunch of like a tenant、uh, trying to like. Push for rent control and things like that in like Mountain View, Sunnyvale, Lower Peninsula, and、um, our、uh, interactions with the Mountain View Tenants Coalition, which is a coalition of you know homeowners and、uh, tenants and probably some landlords in there.、Um, it, it's been、uh, very strained, and、um, the dominance of homeowners in that coalition has put.、Um, A huge strain on the sustainability of that coalition. Wait,、uh, like, well, what actually? What What is the harm of having homeowners control levers of a coalition like that? So, I mean, we were talking about before, like, homeowners and tenants'、um, interests just fundamentally don't align at, at some point. Sure.、Um, there are like woke homeowners, people who maybe don't want to see certain types of change in their community, like displacement, but.、Um, Homeowners want to like not be a bad person, yeah. And like a lot of them are not going to say, "Oh, I'm going to actually try to do evil." But at a certain point, if you say, "Okay, change is going to make life tougher for me," are they going to say, "Oh, wait, let's let's hold off with that one"? Because I think it's abs-、yeah. you absolutely see that. Yeah, I mean, there there is a certain degree to which homeowners are just going to be more resistant to change because they've put their life savings into buying into a neighborhood. Yes. I, I talk to people like people who are actually trying to make things better for tenants who have recently bought a home.、Mm-hmm. This is someone who's put down literally over a million dollars. If you're anywhere around here, very cool. <laughs> with in, in, they're making a bet that. 
the value of the home will stay high. Yeah. Which is, I'm saying, if you've made that bet, you know, that is a conflict of interest if you are actually trying to make things better for tenants. Mm-hmm. Because you are saying, I want to keep things unaffordable because if indeed housing becomes affordable, you're going to lose a big amount of money. And as we saw, like how people dealt with seeing home values drop in 2008, it's not fun to actually go underwater on your mortgage. And it, it's, it's, it, it destabilizes the mm-hmm. whole structure of, of this home ownership scheme. Yeah. And um, I think there is, to some extent, um, a relationship between the way homeowners view uh, housing and the way that land landlords view housing. I mean, they I, both I've seen, viewed as an investment. I, I've noticed that. Uh, I mean, I, this is just something I've noticed with um, interactions with people in Livable Sunnyvale and the Mountain View Tenants Coalition. That people who are homeowners tend to be um, less likely to uh, be down with. Uh, explicitly anti-landlord um, rhetoric hmm. in the sense of they don't like it when renters start talking about their struggles uh, as a class as uh, fundamentally in a struggle with the landlord class. Hmm. And I think that comes from a lot of uh, places. Um, part of it is you're a homeowner, so you're probably maybe more likely to uh, think about property rights in and a certain way. Part of it is a certain maturity. It's like I grew up. Sure, yeah. I got with the program. Yeah. And I mean, I feel bad for all these people who haven't got where I am. But let's try to help these people out, and they'll be as sensible, mature as I am yeah. someday. And, and I think uh, maybe, and maybe there is also an aspect to which, like, they might think of themselves as, as future landlords. Um, like, if you go to like any uh, city council session where they're discussing some like renter protections. Uh, the 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 landlords are going to be sending out all the small time landlords, hmm. and they're basically just like ho- uh, homeowners, like they own like a single family home or a du- duplex, and to them like it's all about like hey this is my home and I'm providing housing. So I think maybe there is to some extent like uh, they are very str- they're very happy to leave precautions saying any tenants protections should only apply that you have five or more units or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Which I'll say is the last two landlords I had, they I was their only tenant, you know, so Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> so, so, I mean that's that's a little scary being all by yourself at the <laughs> Yeah, it's it's saying like you should have no rights or no protections because they're the only it's like I'm saying if I'd say if any but like you should have protections. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't understand why it should be like, oh if your landlord's a small time, the argument would be that if you're at the margin, they'd say, okay, if you're making it tough for me, I'm just going to stay out of the market altogether, which mm-hmm. would be a loss. But I would just say if the only way you're putting the units in the market is making life worse for tenants, I don't think it's a very solid way to, to, to kind of make things work for tenants. Right, yeah. I don't think you make – you don't make tenancy – you don't make you know kind of being a renter better by making it worse for renters. Mm-hmm. You'd say like, oh, yeah. It's it's just kind of like yeah the food's cheap you know because it got so much worse it's I don't know uh, but I think one big thing you talk about them in common and this is you know I think probably every episode of this show mentions Prop Thirteen sure yeah the interests of landlords oh, yeah. and and they are both landowners and they are both supported by Prop Thirteen so if you go to a place which is a homeowner organization that wants to help renters and you say is it in renters' interest to abolish Prop Thirteen to completely repeal Prop 13 for everybody, I would say 
that is 100% in renters' interests. Would you say it is? Yeah, I mean, th- that's another thing that I have really, really noticed among um, homeowners who have injected th- themselves in the housing um, activism space. Sure. They are way more likely to push back on repealing or reforming Prop 13 because to them, that's that's a matter that's <laughs> that's a matter of actually their survival yeah. which is it sucks that there's a zero sum game it shouldn't be the fact for us to survive as renters homeowners need to go underwater but the system with prop 13 has made this a zero sum game and right. it sucks and and, and um for uh some of us who are like advocating for a more radical leftist vision of housing I mean, we might be talking about things like abolishing land ownership or whatever. Yes. And it's um, frustrating to communicate these kinds of things to homeowners because they bought into the system where their uh, access to stable housing is tied in with their what they view as a right to own land. Yes. I mean, that's the thing. If you are a landowner, you have a you have solid gold security to be a home to, to to live and if you're not a landowner you know all bets are off and i'd say either the solution is as many people as possible are landowners or you make it better for people who are landless mm-hmm. and it's really hard to make it better for people who are landless without it coming at the cost of land ownership for sure yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean i think this is just you know wild is there's a poll recently overall do you think prop 13 passing to be a good or bad thing for california among people 18 to 34 uh 54% said mostly a good thing which is like how are people 18 to 34 saying it's in their interest? That's that's pretty... It's disappointing. Yeah. I mean, so oh, they're saying if Prop 13 were the, to... 54% are saying thumbs up to Prop 13. Oh, 22% Jesus. are saying it's a bad thing. Ooh. 23% say don't know. So more people yeah. don't. It's like, I think if you are a young person who housing is is not happening for you, it's just it's just a struggle. You should say, "Hey, what has made this happen?" And you should look at Howard Jarvis's jowly face and say, "This this man has basically made my life worse." Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, not not to uh, completely talk about Prop Thirteen the whole time. But, sure. I mean, Prop Thirteen is a difficult uh, issue to explain. To it's people, very boring. It's boring. It's dry. Um, <laughs> You, you get this moment of glimmer where people are like, kind of like, I don't know a lot about housing, and then they learn more, and then they learn enough, and then several months in the process, they learn about Prop 13, like, wait, this can't be real. This can't be a real policy. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and like, the thing is, like, because um, the left hasn't had really, really in depth discussions about housing policy for, except uh, until like maybe the last like five years. Um, a lot of what people think of as progressive housing policy still is tied to like this uh, uh, kind of populist view of uh, everyone should have a house, you know? I mean, I think it's it's romantic to say like, yeah, let's live like my grandma and my grandpa yeah. did. They had a white picket fence. You know, this is the natural American way to happen. And you got to say, is this plausible for our cities? It's I don't think it is. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that, that really ties into why people have a default bias toward supporting things like Prop 13 if you just, on the face of it, describe what Prop 13 does, which is a handout to homeowners. Yeah. But um, 
It's like I, I want to I want to attack billionaires. I want to attack all these fat cats. Exactly. But like normal homeowners, they're not fat cats. I mean, that, their I, house may be worth three million dollars, but they're not a fat cat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's it's for me, it's kind of difficult for to describe why Prop 13 is bad for someone who's new to the issue, except for putting it in the context of the Reagan tax revolts, you mm, know, yeah. when it was passed, uh, 79, right? 78. 78. I mean, I guess maybe it would affect in 79, but yeah, it was a 78 ballot. Yeah. And and, uh, and the the thing about um, homeowners being fat cats, but not those, those kinds of fat cats, I mean, that's another really insidious uh, consequence of homeownership is... Kind of um, putting all these people in a separate uh, quasi-capitalist class. Yeah. Um, Having all these people who necessarily uh, have to be worth like, you know, a million dollars or $1.5 million just to be able to stay in this neighborhood. Sure. I mean, they, they, they are... They are holding on to an asset and not really sharing it in a way that, one, they are increasing their equity, and two is they're making life worth for tenants. And it's very hard to say that it's like, oh, yeah, they're just trying to live their lives because they are still benefiting from this policy. And even if you say, you know, it's like, oh, they're only living their house, they're not, they're not cashing out, the very fact they could means a lot. People can get extra you know they can draw on their equity and it's just the feeling of saying well if you really don't care about your three million will you sign this paper here to say you give it away mm-hmm. it's like they won't <laughs> they won't give away their three million dollars yeah 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 and so um going back to this um topic of like homeowners and their involvement with the tenants rights movement I've asked. This is just one final thing on sure, this. Sure. Yeah. I've asked the San Francisco Tenants Union on different things. Like, will they make a statement and saying they oppose Prop 13 and say, "Oh, we'll, we'll think about it." Like, yeah. We have to like. It's saying like, if they are really a tenants union, how is this not a slam dunk to say something which protects homeowners is not in tenants' interest? And a big part of it is the San Francisco Tenants Union is run by homeowners. Yeah, I mean that's 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 uh, one of the uncomfortable things that. Um. The left has to deal with uh, moving forward is um, there are groups like SFTU, and they do a lot of really good work. Sure. And I mean, I would love to have a group like the SFTU that does tenant outreach and ten, uh, you know ser- offer services to tenants in our area. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that they're run by um, you know pretty rich, mostly white homeowners is super problematic. Um, the thing- Prop Thirteen is a huge example of that. Yeah, there are things that are on the table to change, and there's things that are not on the table. Yeah. And I certainly am a believer in saying if you want to change California for the better, the biggest thing is find the biggest lever out there, which is the Prop 13 and mm. changing land taxes, and try to work towards flipping it. And maybe this is just, you know, you know, join the real world, but I think that, that if there's any chance of making this work for people, you have to basically – Get rid of the the thing that stops anything from working. Everything mm-hmm. from value capture to making just housing affordable. It's I think it's it's unthinkable without touching it. Yeah, and um, there uh, the contradictions with uh, the situation with the homeowner led tenant advocacy groups uh, bleeds into just the core of what their analysis on the housing issue is. So, I mean, I'm 
what I'm trying to be polite about, but don't be polite. Just just go into it. Basically, the whole um, backlash against um, um, zoning liberalization. Sure. In San Francisco. Yeah. Which uh, is kind of characterized by like the left versus Yimbies. Let, let's let's to kind of talk about something maybe we like are more hear more about directly, and I think is actually even more even more stark. Talk about Berkeley because Berkeley is a place where zoning liberalization is hit back against the old hippies. Oh yeah, for sure. And this is like the left in Berkeley is kind of these same people. So it's like, oh yeah, we need to protect these single family homes. Yeah, and and it's funny because I feel like when I think of Berkeley, I think of a town, small city that models itself um, in uh, culturally after SF, or they kind of like model themselves. I mean, they they have uh, they they occupy a similar space in the public imagination. Yeah, about uh, their the history with. The civil rights movement, and you know, um, it kind of environmentalism like, and stuff like that. It kind of says like how crazy it is, like in like the way that we approach things, and like how different the discourse is. Like most people, like, oh yeah, you know, Berkeley, aren't they basically commies? Aren't they yeah. pinkos? And like to us, we deal is like, oh yeah, they're right, they're right wing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> it's like it's... what a weird world in that like people can't decide like what the general ideology of these people are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we, yeah, yeah. It's so funny to to hear what like people outside of California think of Berkeley, and and we just like when we talk about Berkeley, we're just like frothing at the mouth, at, like just like dragging these uh, right wing homeowners and their reactionary kids. <laughs> it's. I mean, I. It's. It is the kind of thing of saying that. Even if you have the right mental outset, when your material interests go against it, you vote your personal property rights. Yeah. And Berkeley is the biggest example of these people are, you know, left wing hippies who became right wing, you know, I got mine because the system made them that way. What a crazy thing. Yeah. And, and they were also just like these people are coming from strains of the left that um, didn't really have a completely holistic view uh, a hol- a very coherent holistic critique of capitalism and critique of the current ho- housing situation yeah so i mean what does it mean to be a leftist it means having tie-dye shirts and acoustic yeah. guitar a, a lot know, of that growing you know zucchini. boomer um ultra liberalism is uh, is about your personal lifestyle choices and how here they are. Um, a lot of it is uh, related to like this anti-growth environmentalism that was really, really like um, just dominant in the seventies. Yeah, and it basically just viewing cities and city development as kind of like um, a uniformly evil force that's a manifestation of global capital. You know, this was like when yeah. anti-globalism was becoming a thing, and they so their uh, attachment to that small town lifestyle and that aesthetic, yeah, uh, you know, bourgeois left, uh, what is it, bourgeois left pastoralism. left pastoralism, yeah, it's basically like the, it's basically drawing on these like aesthetic attachments to like what they view as an anti-capitalist lifestyle. Well, it's 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 how what would the Lorax say? The Lorax would say, "Don't change Berkeley; it's perfect." But what if you have people who are one? 
paying out, like just suffering to pay enough for rent. And two, people are commuting and polluting to get into Berkeley. It's like, is this part like, and they're saying, no, it's it, the Lorax likes Berkeley. This is perfect now. <laughs> yeah. And let's not look at these people driving in two hours every day. I mean, um, the Sierra Club is a, a great example of that. I mean, until very, very recently, yeah. local Sierra Club chapters completely dominated by this exact same strain of thinking. Sure. Where, I mean, they were, <laughs> was it the Berkeley SF chapter of the Sierra Club that was like defending um, the preservation of like a parking structure? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that, that is yeah. their bread and butter. Yeah. Which, which is, um, I guess, for our generation of uh, environmentally conscious people, we're a lot more concerned with um, climate uh- Climate change and opposing car culture, which yeah. is a big enemy of this. So, um, from their perspective, they don't want to see more development because they want to just preserve the amount of green that's in front of their face. Sure, even if that means suburban sprawl, more development that's outside of their peripheral vision. Yeah, but um, and there is. It seems like it's now a battleground in the yeah. Sierra Clubs. Now there is actually an urbanist wing, which is saying. Cities objectively are better for the environment. Yeah, I, I think I've already heard that um, in the big uh, Berkeley SF chapter, there's already starting to be changes there. Sure. Um, I mean, uh, looking at our chapter, the Loma Prieta chapter. Yeah. Uh, do they like endorse Lydia Ko like oh, in 2016? <laughs> I mean, and the thing is too, if it's you know, I think that if they were going to make a big change, like saying, "Hey, let's." make a bus lane for El Camino, I, I think that's just, is that quixotic here? Is that just like too much to ask for because cars cars rule here? I mean, that's precisely the kind of thing that Sierra Club, Club should be completely committed to, I feel like. Sure. Making life tougher for cars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that's one of those real zero-sum things that you really need to put your values down is space should be... at. Anytime it's anti-car, you should <laughs> you should you should go for it, and especially when it's at when it's at the benefit of pedestrians or you know multimodal transportation. Sure, and it's I mean it's just around here it's tough because this is this is built for it, and to, yeah. to change away from it, it's going to make people feel the pain. But it's the good kind of pain. It's like exercising. It's yeah, the kind the, of pain we need to get used to. The entire county is um, is basically like a sprawl a collection of sprawling suburbs. Yeah. Um, with the exception of like a couple of urban villages, they have like one in San Jose. I was going to say like every city is one strip where it's actually yeah. oh, this is kind of a city. You have Castro Street and Mountain View University in Palo Alto. I think San Jose has like two or three. Yeah, it's, San Jose is a it's a little urban core. Yeah, although I, I have uh, <laughs> issues with that uh, as well. I mean, like for example, in San Jose, you'll never see like anything coming from the city. Uh, the housing department, like, oh, yeah, we should just legalize, like, fourplexes everywhere because, like, they are ultra concerned with um, kind of, like, this very controlled development of small sections mm. into urban villages where they can, like, really, really well plan out, like, all the bus lines and, um, you know, the balance of housing with commercial space and, um, um you know, uh, retail and stuff like that, so that it's like all like fiscally like uh, plus. 
Yeah, well, it was an episode earlier uh, where I had uh, Ace and NDI, our friend. Oh, uh, yeah. And he talked a lot about the fiscal picture of, of San Jose. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they are more pinched than most people. And it's the sad truth that building more dense housing is a precarious bet in the Bay Area due to things like Prop 13. Right. You you have to – you have to – if you're going to have like a fiscal uh, – um, Housing development in in a place like San Jose that is fiscally a good you know good for the city. Sure, it has to have a certain amount of density that basically because of um, you know local politics, like they basically uh, put that density in very very specific places, so yeah. it doesn't make too many people mad. I mean, I think this goes hand in hand with like who who can you get people when you're kind of working for changing the system? It's it's good to find people who are identifiably evil, bad actors, just real creeps, and saying, "Hey, let's fight these bad landlords." <clears throat> it's a lot harder to say, "Let's look at this big system and let's change this this rule that is just." warping our minds because mm-hmm. i think that's the truth there's a lot of invisible little rules that make good people turn bad and i think that's i, I think that's awful yeah and um if we have to have like um good discussions about this in let's say we're part of the activist left yeah um we have to really address like anti-intellectualism in sure. the left and basically um, so this is uh, kind of going into the point about how this is the article you uh, share with me, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So um, there's an essay by uh, uh, I see it in front of me: Liz Featherstone, Doug Henwood, and Christian Parenti. Yeah. So three um, well-regarded Marxist organizers and thinkers. This is a 2004 article. Yeah. Uh, called "Action Will Be Taken." Yeah. So. Um, I think their point, um, the point they make about anti-intellectualism in the left um, is really, really um, well suited to thinking about why the left has failed um, regular tenants in San Francisco and the broader Bay Area. Yeah. And their point is basically because uh, we have this distinctly American anti-intellectualism in the left that kind of thumbs its nose at any kind of deep thinking. Sure. Um, and prefers, you know, just direct, maybe direct action. Ac- direct action is not the right term for it because you know, direct action is the thing. But like, There's a quote just, from the article saying, yeah. people think very little about capitalism outside of moral discourse. Yeah. So, I mean, like, what is bad? Bad is taking showers that are too long. It's eating food, which is bad for the environment. It's, like, doing all these little choices about being a consumer in some ways. And, like, that's how you be a good person. Yeah. And, like, it's – but it's not really systems thinking. And um, the the fact that it was written in t- 2004 actually really brought me back to when I was, like, just a kid in uh, middle school, high school, and first getting introduced to the left. Sure. And uh, going to anti-war protests and stuff like that. And I was – and this is a thing that uh, people talk about in the context of party politics and coalition building and thinking about, like, what is the left? Yeah. Because most people who identify with the left are not coming from a Marxist background or a, an explicitly socialist background. And uh, it's kind of just a collection of, like, 
random different um, advocacy causes. Uh, and we even see this in like DSA meetings. Like there are people who will just like at our meetings, just passing out flyers for veganism, hmm. you know, things like that. Um, there's, you know, criminal justice reform or prison abolition. Yeah. Environmentalism, veganism. So it's, it's anti-war. More, yeah. It's more about saying here are things that I care about. Yeah. Look, look at these my heart. Are, these yeah. are the good issues that with with the good positions on the good issues. And if you are part of the left, you should have more or less these views on, you know, and then it goes on to like LGBT issues, identity, race, and so on and so on. Well, this article is largely talking about like anti-globalism because I think like the 2000 or so was, was yeah. that like there was the big protest in Seattle. Was that right? About like basically um, the yeah. World Trade Organization and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, but part of it too is people don't like global trade without really explaining what the exact mechanisms are about what makes it bad. And it's, I think it's interesting, this is the Henry George program. Henry George, I think, is fairly called a leftist who was very much for global trade, which is, like, how, like, is there an actual disagreement there? And I think the problem is the anti-global trade contingent of the left, it isn't very explicit about what it is saying. It's more about the fact there is global capitalism, and this is bad because of, you know, reasons. Yeah, it's it's, I mean, this is a thing that, um, like with every issue, leftists have a hard time communicating in a coherent way to a broad audience of people. Why is globalism bad or what are its downsides? Sure. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, so I, I think the, the globalism uh, example is a kind of a, a big example to wrap your my my head around. But basically, like, if you're talking about a certain strain of anti-globalist activism, you're talking about uh, a movement that is operating on a bunch of kind of um, a bunch of assumptions that are sort of related, and those touch on um, you know like colonialisms or imperialism, yeah, um, you know exploitation of thir- workers in the third world, sure, uh, undermining labor power in the U.S. And then other things it like it certainly correlates with a lot of really gross stuff. Yeah, and then and then there are also just like more fluffy things that people that that get injected into the discourse, like um, global. If you were uh, letting capitalism become more global, or capital become more global, it becomes bigger and badder. Sure, and I think that's a, that's a, that is I think one of the strains of the left, which I think is probably its strongest case, which is saying you can never outsmart big money. Big money is always going to outsmart you, and I think that's that's a fair ex- assumption. Don't let <laughs> don't let power get too big because they are going to do bad things. Yeah, I think, for sure. I think as far as like the power dynamics of the left go, that's really that's that's sound. Um, yeah, but uh, the problem with uh, purely uh, revolving your room, your movement against globalization is that even the framing of the term gl- anti-globalization is kind of limiting yourself to a very specific type of action, a very specific like group of issues. Yeah. Whereas what um, Parenti and it all, Parenti and company are like talking about are like um, the need for. Um, Looking for a bit, a better world, sure. Like saying, making the call for uh, that a better world is possible. 
I, I feel it's a kind of it's it's the the kind of a difference of like of of like holistic medicine of the sense of just saying it's like you're just all unhealthy you know your body is a mess we need to just we need to just dispose of this body as opposed to saying hey you have a tumor we need to cut it out it's it's like it's a weird kind of idea of just saying we can't zoom in and look at one specific thing which is wrong you can just say like everything is diseased and I feel if you say like global capitalism is evil it's like I mean, if you are looking at everything, it's like you're not wrong, but I think we can be more productive in saying what is wrong about it. Right. And, and I understand why there are um, parts of the left that are opposed to just wringing our hands about theoretical concerns. And these are issues that uh, we run into when we're organizing locally around housing issues. Sure. Because if you're talking about even something as basic as uh, whether we should have zoning liberalization. Sure. Uh, which will you know lead the way to more market rate development. Yeah. Um, the holistic view of that is saying it's like, wait, that is supported. That is that is protecting big capital and big developers. That's what they yeah. want to make to make their, you know, their large global capital sink their teeth into our communities. And like it's it's like this big story that doesn't really kind of, it's not very mechanism driven. It's not, it's it's certainly not very wonky. It's I mean it's a narrative that, um, has developed over let's say, the last two generations or whatever on the left for a whole bunch of reasons. We already talked about, like, anti-growth environmentalism and stuff like that. Sure. Homer, homeowner interests within the tenant advocacy, like, movement. Sure. Um, but part of it is kind of like this idea that if you look at things changing, you can say it is capital changing it, which is not sure. wrong in saying things are bad, when, in fact, when things don't change, people still suffer. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's um, like I mean, when you don't see visible change, there's still all these evictions, sure. price increases happening under the surface. Yeah, and, and there are. It's difficult to find a space in, <clears throat> um, let's say, like leftist activism or lect- leftist organizing, to have a in-depth, nuanced discussion about. Well, what are the impacts if you're going to allow building? Uh, eight-story apartment buildings in this neighborhood versus this neighborhood. Yeah. And these are basically um, the kinds of arguments that we have to have if we want to uh, solve um, the housing crisis and if we want to build, like, a more sustainable, just, like, more humane future in cities. But a lot of the arguments just get boiled down to it's uh, trickle down uh, housing, or um, oh, this is like a pro development talking point. Sure. Um, Which is, I mean, is this unfair? This is the way I kind of view it: of saying we need to build an eight story structure, and like, it, and let's say, let's look at something that actually has a lot of very real baggage, like, and let's build it in the mission. Sure. Yeah. And it's going to cause evictions. It's going to cause real human pain based upon the fact it's dropping right there in the mission. Yeah. And I would say, okay, how would I look at this? I would look at it saying, who who is actually harmed? It's people who are largely landless tenants who are actually going to be pushed out because they are getting kind of an incidental benefit, which is that eventually, you know, rents 
may go down in a global or local fashion. Sure. And this is balanced against other risks, saying what if actually because of the density, rents increase because of agglomeration, which is, I think, very possible. Yeah. But there's there's very real mechanisms either way. And I think the the opposition, I think instead of looking at, let's try to pinpoint the problems, we'll say, you know, big capital development is bad and we must oppose it entirely and we must protect basic in the implicit thing let's protect the status quo which i think is dangerous as hell because it's saying because we can't analyze the actual mechanisms of harm the smartest thing we can do is do nothing and i think that's frightening and that really is what happens we saw things back in the day of you know tenant advocacy was like let's you know, not get rid of a few, you know, SROs, let's preserve what we had, but they never were progressive in saying, because all these things are actually, like, we can't tweak it to create more good things for tenants. And it was just, it was just fighting this uphill slide, like, uh, uphill slide, I'm not sure the right phrase. (laughs) It's fighting this, like, downhill slide towards everything getting worse, and all you can do is this little bit of preservation by opposing it. Mm-hmm. And I just think unless you have a more progressive vision on what levers can you turn to make things better, it's like everything is screwed. I don't know. That's that's how I view it. I think we have to be smarter about, I, I think, honestly, the policy behind things. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that's just too wonky head in the cloud or do you think that we actually can have a leftist activism that actually looks at policy and knows how to turn it for the benefit of people. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned like rent gap theory or um the idea that um like if you have a monster in the mission, sure. It will have um material impacts on the people in the neighborhood by sending market signals to the surrounding landlords that they, hey, uh maybe I can raise rents. Sure. Like, is that what we're talking about? That's part. That's part of it. I think yeah. when you're talking about the agglomeration benefits of 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 kind of in a place which is qu- like quote unquote like underutilized, yeah. It, part of it is saying, hey, look at all these poor people living in a mm-hmm. place where we could have a lot more money. Yeah. And I think that if they're saying if capital is looking, where's a free lunch? It's going into a place where people aren't paying enough rent, changing it to a way that they can pay more or bringing in a richer clientele. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's rent gap theory. And I think that it is a bad reason to say let's do nothing. Yeah. But I think it is an actual explicit mechanism we need to be very careful about. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that uh, we need to be careful about that. Um, and I think there's an important point to note that um, if you're looking at like um, opposition within, let's say, the mission neighborhood to yeah. a monster in the mission, um, whether you agree with, um, you know, to what extent rent gap theory is correct or not, um, I think it's important to understand that um, the people, how people perceive uh, new development doesn't come from nowhere. Sure. I think there is to some extent like an intuitive um understanding of rent gap theory that kind of ties into with just like a baseline like fear of change. Yeah. Um I I think thesis antithesis synthesis. You know, thesis is the yimby, you know, let's build more, it's going to make everything better. The antithesis is 
it's going to hurt a lot of people who don't control their housing. And you know, because people come in, they're only going to eat up at the benefit of people who actually are precarious, and things won't get that much better. And I think the synthesis is, look at where you develop in order to have it come, you know, basically at places where people control their environment. If you upzone in areas where people are either, you know, homeowners, or if you make sure that you make it up to tenants, mm-hmm. I think it's going to work. But right now, the problem is, it's very hard to just build your way out of it if everything accrues to landowners. Oh, yeah. And it's also, um, I mean, if we're talking about just like zoning, like why the left has certain um, views on zoning liberalization, just looking at San Francisco, right? Um, development currently is happening mostly in places like the Mission, where there's relatively loose zoning. The point I kind of want to make is kind of, I want to kind of tie in the progressive uh, left coalition in SF with this idea that their uh, governing narr- the narratives that govern their analysis don't really come from nowhere. They come from their leadership. Sure. And outside of that, there is basically anti-intellectualism that doesn't challenge the given narratives. Yeah, I mean, I'll, so, uh, so, uh, so I, I think you said it pretty uh, well right there. I mean, I think part of the thing is like tenants don't actually go in and think up their own analysis. They're busy, you know. Yeah, it's, they, and, they don't they don't read policy papers. They don't figure things out. So when people organize for them, they listen to them. And if the person organizing them is a homeowner, yeah. you know, they're going to basically say, okay. We're going to listen to this person. And there's this kind entire thread of San Francisco leftist housing politics, which is what is the only rule? The rule is Dean Preston is right about everything. <laughs> and so, which is just, I think Dean Preston is a homeowner. And I think that there's a lot of things. I don't think he's necessarily a bad person. I don't know much about him, yeah. but I think that he has a certain policy toolkit that he, that he will address. And I think there are things which he will not talk about and it is not shocking to me that the things you won't talk about are things that hurt homeowners. Yeah, so I think Dean Preston is a really interesting example. Um, what, going back to, like, why is it that development is currently um, contained within the mission? And if you're going to be talking about um, kind of shielding uh, mission residents from all of the impacts of development, let's say. Um, the top, the tool of liberalizing zoning in extremely wealthy neighborhoods on the west side of San Francisco, for example, sure, is not really entertained um, by the left. Sure. Because, and, and because on the left we have a whole... Uh, toolbox of rhetorical uh, defenses against why we should never deal with uh, increasing development to deal with rising rents. Sure. And this analysis doesn't really come from nowhere. No, I mean, I think it's what I worry about is you have a very sloppy tool, which is up zone, up zone, up zone, yeah. without really looking at the fine points. Sure. And then you have a counterpoint, which is never up zone, never up zone, never up zone. I'm not just never up zone, but don't up zone these 
literally exclusionary neighborhoods. Exactly. I mean, it's their that, answer is not only don't upzone the mission exclusively. Their answer is don't upzone anywhere yeah. because you have proven upzoning is not the answer, which is, I think, such a disproportionately bad answer, especially mm-hmm. because the Sunset homeowners are saying like they're like wearing their support the mission hat to say don't upzone my neighborhood, yeah. which is so craven. It, it, and 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 um, these people are. Um, <laughs> Living in uh, like you know, deliberately class and uh, race exclusionary uh, neighborhoods. Which we're talking about the mission, but like we're right in our backyard. Lydia Koo over here. Yeah, you know she uh, she she plays stuff from you know Jacobin. She 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 yeah. posts articles from all these leftist things saying, "Hey, let's look at all the failures yeah. of upzoning." I mean, and she does it because the fact she doesn't want Palo Alto, the most exclusionary, you know, regressive place in the world to change this is a this is a huge issue where uh we've allowed um people who live in exclusionary neighborhoods like the people who live in let's say 50 percent of san francisco's land in cupertino berkeley and palo alto to be able to use these um anti-capitalist anti-displacement anti-gentrification rhetoric yeah to oppose uh housing development yeah dense housing development and a lot of that has to do with laziness uh, from uh, tenant advocates, and that's including people like us from being able to, ch- to challenge these existing narratives. And these dominant narratives come from some of it is um, conscious. Some of it is probably just a lot of unconscious bias that's coming from, well, uh, the SFTU is led by a bunch of boomer, you know, long hair, long white hair hippies. Sure. Who own homes? Yeah, and because of their class interests, they have a lot of uh, blind spots. To they would never entertain more development in their neighborhood because yeah. that that's uh, because that would change the character of their neighborhood. That would sure. change the character of the investment that they poured their entire life savings into buying. And they just like their neighborhood. They don't want to see it change. Yeah. In the fa- and if you completely control your housing security, and you say, okay, I can't avoid change and suffer no consequences. People are going to pick it, you know, because a change is not fun. And you know, yeah, change sucks. I mean, like, I mean, before it's it's a completely natural uh, way to think. Yeah. And so, I mean, sometimes we kind of um, harangue these people and call them classist or racist, but a lot of it is. I mean, it's a lot of it isn't. Yeah, a lot of it isn't based on uh, any classist or racist uh, sentiments at all. They're just. I mean, maybe subconsciously it is, but like a lot of it is just a basic fear of change that I can really relate to. I mean, I can relate to. I think part of it is you to say, you know, let's look at the harms it causes and balance all these things. And I sure, think yeah. it, it takes a lot of hard thought. Um, this this article, by the way, I just want to kind of this happened years before Occupy, and it seems like it really it really tells a lot about you know kind of what I saw in Occupy, which mm-hmm. is a lot of people said let's change the system, and they didn't really come with a whole deep understanding of banking reform. And I think nothing yeah. happens because they didn't actually understand the mechanisms to change it. And it, I think with housing very, today, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I just think with housing today, if people don't understand the mechanisms, we're not going to fix it. Yeah, I mean, that I um, really remember Occupy being just all around me when I was in college, and I was just too busy to get involved. <laughs> but I also remember... Uh, you were the having, one person. If you had one more person, they would have actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> taken the system down. 
I just remember feeling this frustration at um, why they would not adopt um, a platform or a list of demands or anything. Um, I think, I mean, I think there is room for things that don't really have direction like Occupy just to show that there are, um, there is real um, discontent with how things are. But there were a lot of right-wingers that came out of Occupy. We've came out of Occupy, and he's a straight-up Nazi. I mean, mm-hmm. the, if, you're, if you don't have a focused, uh, progressive, um, you know, socialist um, outlook, and you're just relying on this uh, unfocused, vaguely populist kind of uh, sentiment we to move you forward. we got to do something. You're going to get some – I mean, you know, you, you can't just assume that capitalism is just going to, like, crumble and it's going to give way to beautiful, you know uh, – a democratic socialism, it, it, you you can uh, really, you might be building a platform for just like fascists. So if you were to like, you know, kind of outline a, a optimistic vision of how the leftist vision of, of equitable, dense, environmentally friendly living could happen, what do you think the power of, of you know, how do you think that just the power dynamics and everything comes together to even work towards that? Like, what do you? What is your best case outcome of things changing for the better? Yeah. So um, I don't remember if I uh, we touched on this about the the essay action will be ta- must be taken, or is it action will be taken? A- uh, action will be taken. Yeah. So um, one thing about uh, the context they were writing that in uh, critiquing uh, left anti intellectualism and the nonprofit industrial complex. Sure. Is that they were writing that um, in the San Francisco Bay Area? Yeah. And uh, they talk uh, in the essay and, like, elsewhere basically about how uh, the nonprofit industrial complex kind of completely shapes the way that we approach activism as um, just a thing that doesn't really – I mean, we come in as activists. There are paid advocates who um, have a certain way of doing things, and they already have their platform fleshed out. And we basically just do actions, whereas – uh, you know, rank and file activists aren't expected to engage in debate and discourse and analysis. We are just here to be bodies to, uh, you know, do actions. So it's a it's a top down versus bottom up approach to activism. In a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. Although there it, there are weird like um, ways that it manifests. Um, I think as like fetishizing, um, you know, horizontalism. Um, well, it's kind of funny, like, everybody in the housing discourse is called AstroTurf by the other people. Yeah. I mean, the Yimby is called AstroTurf because there's, like, they've gotten donations from big tech companies and, you know, and there's people, like, developers, like, it's, if it's about liberalization as a general rule, people have thrown their weight behind it. I think there actually has been a lot of gross money being thrown in it. And on the same token, look at, you know, the, uh, I guess, the anti-YIMBY left, not to say like actually like pro-tenant, but anti-YIMBY left, people like Michael Weinstein down in LA has thrown his money behind basically anti-development things and have paid a lot of people to to work for his vision oh, yeah. of, I mean, and it's just like in either side has this big professional class of that is not basically building power from the bottom up, but saying this is what the this is what the powerful want. And I think someone like Michael Weinstein, who says like I don't want my view of the Hollywood sign to be ruined, mm-hmm. therefore let's stop development. It's dangerous. Yeah, I, Michael Weinstein is a a really interesting example. Um, 
because um, he was behind Measure L in Los Angeles. Me- uh, measure S. I oh think yes, S. Yeah. Excuse me. Excuse so me. basically, last year there was Measure S. It was a, a moratorium on new housing development in Los Angeles. Yeah. And the DSA chapter in LA came out against Michael Weinstein, and they straight up uh, and the LA Tenant Union did yeah. as well. Which and, is which is by the way tenant run yeah. tenant union and they they rightfully you know call him out as an evil billionaire because he <laughs> is, I mean he's Lex Luthor of <laughs> particularly the way that he's amassed his billions is just uh, disturbing. But <laughs> well, what, what's the brief summary of? Uh, I don't know all the details. I remember reading it and just being like, Jesus Christ! Like this guy is like <laughs> basically used. Um, his uh, access to uh, AIDS medication as like <laughs> as his way. Uh, are you looking at it right now? No, no. I was, okay. uh, but yeah, I mean, if <laughs> yeah, so, if, if, and, you, and, yeah. if you are, if you are, yeah. So I, I mean, the thing is, um, because um, he has uh, inserted himself into the housing political issue in California for better or for worse. I mean, he's the main funder of um, the. Um, Anti Costa Hawkins, yeah, the Prop uh, 10. Proposition Ten, which we're doing a lot of work on. Which is the thing is Costa Hawkins is is bad, yeah. and it is a landlord friendly law that should be taken down. But it's weird that the person opposing it, who's also putting these little mm-hmm. fingerprints on it in ways that are kind of disturbing, is this dude who is not good news. Yeah, and and, and I mean, just because um, he is our ally on this issue does not mean in any way that he is a good guy or that he has a coherent vision of good housing policy. Yeah. I mean, capitalists are are always in conflict with each other. Yeah. So just because he has um he's willing to fund a campaign against one type of capitalist, you know, like uh, you know, realtors and the landlords, uh doesn't mean that <laughs> his own uh vision of housing isn't also like, you know, discussing in its own way but um i mean we're already seeing like um you know he he has like i think is he funding housing as a human right i don't know so um i don't know if i want to talk about uh michael weinstein too in depth because i'm not going to be i don't want to like i mean people that he work for him are on dsa la's like and i think that's a problem i think honestly i will say this I mean, I'll take my pledge. Okay. I mean, I work, you know, I work and I get a salary. Yeah. And I've never taken money from any billionaire in any context. I hope to never take money from billionaire. I'd like to say that if I am, if I'm ranting on the radio and doing anything, it is 100% because it is what I think and not because anybody has ever paid me money. And do I think less of anybody who's ever taken a paycheck from some big mogul who wants them to sign off on their preferred policy? Honestly, I do. It makes me feel that. <laughs> It makes me feel they've been corrupted. If I see anybody sure, yeah, yeah. who's taken money from a person like Michael Weinstein, I'm like, you are a corrupt, you are a corrupted individual. It's possible that you are still going to do good work, but it it makes me suspicious. Okay, so I'll, I'll say this: um, at the 2017, um, I think it was called the Tenant Power Workshop. Sure, there was a breakout group uh, among um, DSA members. And we talked about whether we should work with Michael Weinstein okay. on repealing Costa Hawkins. Okay. And I, in particular, got a lot of put, heard a lot of fear from DSA LA members hmm. 
that they did not want his money entering their organization. Good for them. Because, yeah, because of exactly the concerns that you were talking about. Yeah. And um, I remember at the time saying, dude, uh, we're DSA. (laughs) We're in DSA. (laughs) We have our own principles. Uh, We already know, like, uh, we can, we we I I would you trust naive us. Fool. I would trust us to you know uh, develop our own analysis independent of what Michael Weinstein is telling us to do, which yeah. I think is still true to a large extent. I mean, it's not but, it's not completely wrong, but I just worry that money and power and your material interests they corrupt you. And yeah. I think this is something we talked about throughout this entire interview. Is it's very right to say no, but I still have principles. But when everything and your the if your paycheck and your property values is working against it, yeah. it's very very hard to just really stand by your principles. Yeah, I mean, it is it is really problematic that he's kind of created. Um, a platform for folks like um, you know, like Damien Goodman, who like worked on Measure S, like who's people a, who have a hatchet guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean they 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 have like they're just like on his payroll, and um, they kind of have like uh, sh- some sort of leftist sheen on them. Like they 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 they're, kind of they're good PR people. They know how to say the right thing to say this is. I mean, like Damien Goodman was freaking out about the fact that they were building uh, on a parking lot yeah. in Berkeley that, you know, this is a holy Ohlone, you know, Native American burial ground. It's a parking lot. It's already been defiled. But he's like, we must protect this parking lot. And was like saying, this is like, this is a new trail of tears. In the yeah. Indies. It's like, it's like, what? Like if, if I'm hearing that from like a Native American group, like in Berkeley, yeah. like an Ohlone group. Sure. Like that's a completely different concern than... Some dude in L.A. who is like liter- who has worked on NIMBY measures and like works for a NIMBY. It's just so opportunistic yeah, and just it's, blatantly it's opportunistic. Fairly, yeah, it's I mean it's like pretty transparently disgusting. Yeah, but I mean that's the thing is um, it it has to be up to um, grassroots organizers uh, to um, counteract this kind of force where we have people with money and, and this is this includes like from the NIMBY side, right? Like. Yimbies, uh, uh statewide get funding from developers and tech companies. And I hate that. Yeah, I absolutely. I really hate. hate that. I mean, like, look at like how they're um, acting in terms of like, um, like basically in line with the CAA on like rent control. Sure. Like not just Prop Ten, but as on principle, opposing rent control as a. Po- I mean, this is not all Yimbies, but this is like some Yimbies in leadership or or in rank and file who are like on principle opposed to rent control and i worry about like there's some people who are just like you know i'm mr econ 101 i'm yeah. going to i'm going to vote for you know what is a simple policy i believe in it's like actually i disagree with you but i know you actually believe it you know okay yeah. i think i would like to i'd like to talk to you about this but i worry when like senior leadership is actually seeming to make policies to discourage taking a stance on something like repealing Costa Hawkins because I worry that like they like is it because they know who pays the bills I mean I don't want to chalk up some sort of motive but it worries me and if they were going to say you know Yimby is a member supported dues paying group that doesn't take money from any big capital I'd say good it's still in your interest mm-hmm. and it makes me feel a lot more confident about you know that you're going to do the right thing yeah and it's um even those Econ 101 guys, I mean, this is maybe going on a separate conversation, but like even those Econ 101 guys are like 
uncritically reading like uh, studies from the Turner Center or from Stanford that are also funded by like the same uh, developer interests. And, and let's be clear, every one of them is living a comfortable life. Yeah. You know, it's like part of the reason saying it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I can't sign off on this is because the fact that they are going to do fine with, you know, yeah. allowing a little bit of pain as long as it happens to, you know, tenants. If you, know? if, you if you are um, kind of divorced from um, the material concerns of ordinary tenants yeah, and also uncritically reading this literature that's coming from, like, you know, reading The Economist or The Wall Street Journal and just like, oh, cold-blooded uh, economic uh, analysis that is actually – you know, always going to be funded by, you know, forces that have their own economic interests. Yeah. Like, you're going to have analysis. You're going to have, you're going to have, um, you're not going to act like a tenant group. Sir, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, yeah. So, um, one of the things I want to see the housing movement develop is a real grassroots, is this kind of bleeding into a call for a call to action? What it's what it's what you want to see. Okay, so what I yeah. just don't say you you need to do this. Okay, yeah. so what I want to see from a grassroots um, uh, tenant and uh, you know socialist housing movement is real uh, tenant organizing. Yeah. Uh, real tenant associations associations and tenant unions that are led by tenants and for tenant interests. Sure. And. And is it in the tenant interest to see upzoning of exclusionary areas? Yeah, I'd absolutely. Say, I'd say absolutely yes. Is it in the tenant's interest to repeal Prop 13? I'd say absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's it's funny because um, if you uh, – so I kind of try to think about what are the comparisons between like conventional labor organizing and tenant organizing because, I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid those comparisons. Sure. I mean, it, it is it is I, the most prominent example of collective action by, yeah. you know, a group. And it's uh, one of the funny uh, kind of, I don't know if this is just like a hot take, but like um, one of the insights that uh, come out of labor organizing is that effective labor organizing uh, has to, uh, effective labor organizers have to be able to think like capitalists in mm. terms of what they can get away with, how uh, how much leverage workers have over the boss um you know how much uh power does uh the big capitalists have over over your your concerns and how much negotiation power you have you know yeah like these kinds of things and uh thinking of that in the context of like tenant organizing and tenant unions like if you're gonna put tenant organizers in the position of thinking with the same eyes as uh the capitalists the landlord yeah um you're gonna fall into a lot of like Arguments that kind of sound like uh, market urbanist arguments, you know, like uh, basically like if you have more supply, that gives a an, any given tenant or group of tenants more negotiation power over their landlord. Yeah. Um, if you have, you know, uh, relatively higher um, vacancies across sure. the city, that gives you a lot more leverage. Yeah. No, I think if you have that kind of hardball, that is actually how you get results. I do worry, though, uh, in the same kind of thing that, you know, perhaps anything short from the IWW doesn't have all workers in mind. It's one specific crowd. And I do worry that if you say, I want to protect these thousand people in this local neighborhood and everyone else, let them figure it out. Mm -hmm. You know, we're unionizing these people. I think we need completely universal policies that help 
all tenets everywhere, which is part of the reason that I'm like an idealist who really signs on to the ideas of Henry George, because I feel like those are things that are universal ideas. Mm-hmm. And But I think that the power dynamics of actually fighting for it, yeah, I mean, that is how things happen. I mean, you don't just live in idealism. Yeah, and, and I think um, there's a... Uh... I would love to see like a global tenant movement, and, and you know, people think a lot about like what kind of issues can we use to build, um, you know, like worker power or working class power or or like the socialist left. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, this um, grassroots tenant organizing is one of those issues that has that potential because um, you know there are tenants all over the world, and uh, you know you can absolutely uh, they ha- they all have a common interest uh, even across borders. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can organize uh, a tenants association within a building complex or within a city for the same uh, landlord. But it's even more powerful when you have when you connect those associations with other tenants in the city to advocate like for a local rent control ordinance like in San Jose or uh, other conservative cities that we are working in. Even if we wanted to, uh, like, let's say Casa Hawkins gets repealed, yeah. even if we wanted to expand rent control or even just cause, we couldn't because we don't have the political power yeah. in those cities. And um, well, nonprofits do a lot of good work in that respect, but they're mostly um, responding to uh, when they're when nonprofits actually do get in the business of organizing tenants, they're mostly responding to like emergency situations, right? Sure. It's, so like the summer winds apartments, yeah. Um, cases where you have dozens of tenants that are going to get evicted like very soon, and you need mo- mass mobilization right now. Yeah, it's it's someone from out. It's Superman coming from outside to save exactly. the day. It's not something that kind of comes from the bottom up due yeah. to real power dynamics. And and uh, from what I understand, this is still the situation as it exists in San Francisco as well. Like mm. uh, a lot of the tenant groups that are organized there are uh, mostly just uh, the most vulnerable tenants. And there is definitely a case to be made that we should emphasize the most vulnerable tenants. But they uh, come into almost like the protection of these nonprofits uh, through, uh, you know, extraordinary circumstances. It's a a charity case as opposed to... Yes. We we talk about, I I think... uh, like in Sweden, there's been like cases of actual government support for collective bargaining mm-hmm. by tenant unions against their landlords. Like, and that's we fantastic. would we would never be able to do that right now in the Bay Area because our approach to tenant organizing is so fractured. Yeah, it's we we lack the it, real structure. To yeah, that. and um, I think there's a real. I mean, I badmouth nonprofits all the time, but I, I mean, they obviously they do so much good work, and I would love even like. Better funded, more nonprofits it, down here in Silicon Valley, like you know, San Francisco's hogging them all. But like, but it's kind of like yeah, Batman is no is no actual replacement for having a functional city. Oh you, yeah, for sure. You can't <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have, you can't have one superhero just save the day all the time. Yeah. So, um, the thing is, um, nonprofits probably will never be up to task to solving this issue of lack of tenant power. Yeah. Because of the. Um, uh, the act of organizing tenants, just regular tenants who are just, you know, not in immediate danger of getting evicted, for example. Yeah. It's really, really hard work, and it's mostly invisible. Certainly. I mean, it's if you make it work right, 
the results should be very boring. Yeah, it should exactly. Be the fact, hey, these people have lower rents, no evictions. Yeah, it's well, business as usual. But it takes a lot of work to if, make that. <laughs> to yeah, make that yeah. Happen. If you're if you're organizing in your complex or in your block for like you know more responsive, um, you know, uh, maintenance or negotiation negotiating like lower rent hikes or yeah. no rent hikes. That's not going to make the paper yeah. unless you have like a strike or something, you know. And I think that's a, it's a question too. Like, what is a huge victory of like organized labor? And I think universal principles. They fought for basically yeah. what is a universal right, like the forty-hour work week. Yeah. And and that happened, and it's something we take for granted. And I think for the same token, if tenants said, "What is a universal tenants' bill of rights?" Mm-hmm. and they really all across the different cities fought for this Bill of Rights, like, that could really make some exciting things happen. Yeah, and, and that will probably take a lot of really radical action. Certainly. And that radical action can't happen unless you actually build tenant power. <laughs> you can't You can't rely on mobilizing, you know, uh, photogenic t- tenants. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would say that, you know, as much as I dream of you have one really nice policy that you turn the f- switch and it fixes a lot of things. No one's going to turn the switch unless there's real political will to make it happen. And I think that you can't just dream of we need one, you know, completely benevolent wonk at the highest range yeah. to fix the world. Like, like one Scott Wiener, <laughs> but maybe more woke. Yeah, it's like that's never gonna, <laughs> you're never going to get that kind of fix from the top down. So, what's your final word on tenant power? I guess maybe this isn't a final word, but something that's been on my mind, like just looking at the way that um, foundations um, give nonprofits money and how nonprofits depend on that to um, demonstrate that they're doing work. Yeah. Um, Just going back to how tenant organizing is pretty, should be mostly invisible um, until you're doing like really, really mass actions. Um, There is no good way to show your foundation officers that you're making good grounds on organizing tenants or that you're making big, uh, uh, you know, front page news getting um, actions. If you're just like talking to your neighbors and having like uh, small meetings with barbecues and things like that and just educating people about what their rights are. Grant writing is not about effectiveness. It's about showy stuff you can do to get more grants. And that's it's it's bad for academics. It's yeah. bad for academia. It's it's bad for st- stuff like the nonprofit complex. So I think it's up to um, radical um, leftist tenant uh, advocates or, or organizers, uh, people in this left af- activist space who care about housing as a human right, to do the unsexy work of just mass tenant organizing um, and trust uh, ourselves and our fellow tenants to come up with a really good analysis that is kind of steps beyond uh, what I think are the weaknesses of the existing uh, left uh, housing discourse. Well, that sounds like a good challenge. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for, for laying down this uh, this goal for, for the left and for, for tenants. <laughs> uh, thanks, man. Yeah. We've been in conversation today with Ollie Zhu, housing activist throughout the Bay Area. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes of the show online at the Henry George Program website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Shoe Stanford. <laughs>